0: 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be looking at the first seven verses uh, this evening. It says, here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but a love, not a lover of money. That would have changed things drastically. (laughs) He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Note the parentheses here. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Today, we're going to talk about overseers. Oftentimes, this book for churches like ourselves is used kind of as a manual to see what should be in place and how it should be in place with particular regard to church government, how things should be structured, where people should be and what they should they should do. Um, at times that works, and at, at times it's, it's, it's difficult. So a lot of people are asking that we use Timothy as a guide to church order. Um, one commentator, Luke Timothy Johnson, says it's better to see in this particular text church order in Ephesus as it can be inferred from 1 Timothy. He's really trying to couch his terms here and saying we can't just read 1 Timothy and then plug that in to a church structure today. It's better to see what was going on in that context First, before we start to gain some stuff from it. Now, one of the, the joys of expository preaching, which is what we do here, we just pick a book and we go straight through. One of the, the absolute joys of that is it forces us to talk about things that we might not choose to talk about on a given day. It forces us to wrestle with concepts and things that aren't just on the front of our brains. A lot of times in churches, we'll see uh, sermons that, are, that seem to be more geared towards whatever the pastor wants to say. And then they'll take a verse and then they'll attach it to this, this predominant thought. Here, because we're guided by what comes um, next, we have to, to wrestle with, with things a bit differently. One of the problems with expository preaching... Is that you are bound to whatever is coming next in the text? Um, at times it seems to go right on with, with where we are as a community, and other times it seems a bit strained. I'll be honest with you, this text that we're looking at today seems a bit strained for where we are as a community. Um, I'm hopeful that the Spirit will meet us here and that we'll get some good stuff out of it, but at times this might seem sort of uh, lecturey slash teachy. Um, if any of you have spent time here, you know that I'm a teacher at Salisbury Christian School, and it's easy for me to divert into teaching as opposed to preaching. I was just telling somebody this past week, I'd love to learn how to be a better preacher. But today, with this stuff, it seems more more teaching. So just stay with me. We'll get to Jesus. Uh, he won't be a tack on. I think that he's very intimately involved with this stuff. But it is, we're talking about overseers. Okay, here we go. Um, We'll start off here. It says, here's a trustworthy saying, a little bit of trivia for you. This phrase actually in the Greek text goes with the stuff that Sarah talked about last week. It's as if um, it's talking about men lifting holy hands while they're praying and to do so in a way where they're not uh, quarreling or fighting, where they're, they're pure when they approach God in worship, and it's also talking about the role of women in leadership in the church and how that all works out. And some people would say that this, here's a trustworthy saying, goes with that. Um, Others would say that it goes here. You can see in, in our Bibles, we've taken it from that section and thrown it here. Uh, So some people would think that this, what's following, is actually the trustworthy saying that Paul wants to talk about here, namely with how the church in Ephesus is to be structured. Okay, So it says, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. There's just one thing I want to point out from this line. There's a couple different ways that, that, that God moves in people, um, especially with like a call to pastoral ministry. It's not just something that you in the seat say, I want to be a pastor and I will be a pastor regardless of what anybody else thinks about it. I will start a church and I will do what I want to do. Are you catching the, the first person? Like, I don't care about anybody else. I'm going to make this happen. Like, as far as pastors go, there there needs to be what's called an Internal call where you feel that, where you feel God moving you in a certain direction. And with some of us, like for our jobs and these other things that, that we have uh, going on in our lives, we have felt that movement from God to push us in one direction or the other. Um, but with pastoral ministry, there's that internal call that's usually affirmed by an external call, while, where people are surrounding you saying, "Yeah, I see that. That looks good." If I had a nickel for every person that I told to go to seminary and to become a pastor. I probably have 25 cents to, to 30 cents, close, on my way to a soda. But like there's, there's people outside that would say, I see something special in you. And I just want you to, to see if God's actually calling you to that. Um, understand as well, it's, it's not just pastoral ministry, but there's other offices, even roles in the church too, which I think we'll talk about in the weeks to come. Um, as Doug and I just sit around... Uh, we sit around with the lead team, with, with Sarah and Laura and, and Josh, and we just think about you guys and all the talents and the gifts and the potential that you have. There's like this, this leading in us, this hopefulness that, that you'll find it and pursue it. And for some of you, that means going to seminary. And for some of you, that means um, greeting people at the door or teaching the kids or just being that person in church that, that welcomes folks. Um, All of those are jobs that are are specifically callings on, on people's lives. But here we see someone who is aspiring within themselves to this role of overseer, to this role of church leadership. And it seems as if in this context, it's almost divorced from that pastoral call where God says, hey, I got a job for you. Go do it. It seems as if it's talking more about this internal desire that people have to lead and to lead well note this is not a power play this is not um joe discontent that says the way that these guys run this church is bunk and i can do it better myself so i just need to get on the board and i need to throw a coup and take things over you know that guy or that girl, they exist. Um, this is not that, but this is somebody like you in the seats that's saying, I got this thing. I got this skill set that God's given me. I got this thing that could be very useful, and I want to I see what that looks like. And Paul's saying whoever aspires to that role desires a noble task, code, a hard task, a thankless task, a very um, demanding task. This is not something that you do with your two hours of spare time on a Saturday morning. This is something that you you're called to this idea of leading God's people. What Paul is saying is it's noble. The undertone. It's really hard too. But whoever aspires to that, knowing what all it entails, that's a good thing. So this begs the question, though, who is the overseer? If people are aspiring to this task, who is uh, this person? Some people believe that this person is the bishop. And this is where we get into this is where I said it's kind of teachery. Just stay with me, okay? Um, but here, this is where folks have read. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and have tried to utilize the teachings there and implemented things within the church for today. So people see the overseer in 1 Timothy 3 and say, oh, that's the bishop. That's the person that is not only in charge of this local congregation, but they're in charge of other congregations. So, for example, if I'm the bishop of this block, I would be the one who's overseeing Bethany Lutheran, Restoration Project, Community of Joy, I think that's it, but there's probably more like that, that block of churches. It's not just me and you. It's me as the person that those people look to for guidance and administration. There's also this divide here in the way that Paul talks about this role. It's not necessarily pastor. Timothy is not the overseer. Paul is not the overseer. They're pastors this person has a different function. And in some denominations, we see how the bishop has been implemented as that person based on some of this teaching. So some people, when they read this text, will read in whoever desires to be the bishop desires a noble task. Um, some people, though, I oh, and I have the, the Greek up there because it's, it's singular and it's got the article. It's ton episkopon. The overseer or the bishop the one person who's kind of leading the charge other people would see it differently because there wasn't quite that network at this time there was a lot of churches but it wasn't like the mid-atlantic baptist denominational meeting you know on september where you bring a potluck and you come and you hear whoever talk it's it's not that it's more house church-ish. It's what we were 17 months ago, meeting in the Millwood space with, you know, 25 or 30 people. There was some organization there, but it was very loose. And there was many of those different congregations around the mix. So there'd be one person kind of overseeing that. But some people say, it's not that it's different. The overseer is an administrator or a supervisor of maybe this one house church, or maybe a collection of house churches. Whoever desires to kind of oversee, not lord their power over, but whoever desires to bring about um, administration and uh, focus, they desire something that's good for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church. Other people would see the overseer as an elder. Okay, now let me try to connect some dots for you here. In Titus 1... It's kind of like the same stuff that's going on, but written to a different community. So in 1 Timothy 3, we have this person who's desiring to be an overseer, and then Paul gives this laundry list of characteristics for that person. In Titus 1, he's talking about similar things, as we'll see, but he frames it in different language. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders. Okay? Press Budarus. Let's just say that together. Press Presboudaroos. That's what you do when you say that word. Like Press It just. No, OK. Um, so I'll be honest, moment of reflection. Sometimes when you guys seem like you're glazed, I will start dancing. It's a reflex. It's not helpful. I'm trying to outgrow it. It makes me seem like a man-child. Apologies to you. Um, but they're trying to appoint elders in every town, as I directed you, someone who is blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to a charge of being wild and disobedient. Some of this language is, is very similar. Since an overseer, and here people are going to say, he talks about elders, then he talks about overseers, using our same phrase, tan episcopon the overseer, the bishop, whatever you want to call that person, and kind of bringing them together. The overseer is managing God's house he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, so on and so forth. And we see the same kind of characteristics described for the presbuderus in Titus as describing the episcopon in Timothy. So some people would see that as it must be the same person. Okay? There, there is a point to this, so just stick with me. Um, so if we have these options here, there's differences. But also people would say it's not just an elder. It's probably one of the elders. And now this is a point of contention amongst some churches. Some churches would see someone in my role or Doug's role as the pastor slash CEO, the bishop, the end-all, be-all, the one who has supreme authority. It sounds very scary, doesn't it? Especially when I'm... (laughs) Supreme authority. Yep. Okay. You Know what I mean? So some people would say it's that person who's not singing and dancing and talking about nonsense Greek words to, to people. Um, but instead it's a team of people all with the same level of authority. And this is what splitting churches in uh, the history of church. Uh, whether you have one guy at the top who kind of oversees everything, or if you have people at the top that oversee things or if you have people that are overseeing different expressions. So instead of me being the one who's the bishop over Bethany and our church and community of joy, it would be me and Jonathan and Aaron as a team of people, as a team of elders who are leading together without one usurping um, authority over top of of anyone else. So some churches are structured with this elder-based government and some churches are structured with a pastor slash CEO or even above that a bishop who's overseeing all of these things and kind of keeping people in check the reason why people would say that it's elders plural is because of these texts so in Titus 1 it says appoint elders plural the oos of presbuterus is a plural ending Okay, so we're appointing elders, not just one, but a team, perhaps. And we're appointing them in every town. In Philippians 1, it talks about the overseers, plural, and the deacons, which we'll talk about next week, plural. So we have this ruling body that goes beyond just one person. It's a team of people. In 1 Timothy 4, it talks about, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Set an example for believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid hands on you. Different word here, but the idea is it's not just one person. So go back to the internal, external call. You have this internal call where you say, God is calling me to do something big. It might be pastoring. The elders see that, lay hands on you. And this is where people in ordination, this is where this comes from, lay hands on you to affirm that calling. It's not just one person, the bishop. It's a team of people, the elders. 1 Timothy 5, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. This one will be an interesting week when we get there because it's basically saying, these guys need to get paid some stuff and that might make us uncomfortable, okay? Um, But here it's not just one person, it's the elders and they're all sort of in those leadership positions, okay? So who is an overseer? It seems... That what Paul and Timothy are getting at is it's an office within the church. It seems that it goes beyond just one person to this idea, perhaps, of a team of people. Now, understand, I come to this text with my own junk. If you don't take away much from this talk, take this away. Whenever you crack open the Bible and you read, there's things that you're bringing to the page there's things that you're bringing to those words. It's not as easy as God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Because the thing that you think he's saying is completely and utterly influenced by who you are as a person. The experiences, the experiences that you've been through, the loss that you've faced, the difficult relationships that you have, the fact that you're a guy or a girl, the fact that you're from this culture or that culture, all of your baggage is brought to the text. So when I read this, I see elders. I don't see one person in authority. And I think the reason why, at least one of the reasons why, I mean, I think it's in the text, but one of the reasons under that is I've seen how it hurts people. I've seen how people like you and me have been under those folks and we have felt not love. We have felt authority, cold, detached authority. And that colors how I approach the text. I don't think that's the only reason why I'm going in this direction, but I do at least want to throw this out there, too, that it's one of the reasons. And understand that this, this sort of talk, this sort of conversation is really weird. I doubt most people would just lay all their stuff out here and say, this is why I read the text in this way. Um, but I do it so that you can begin to work through your own stuff as you approach the text, too. There's a conversation happening between God and yourself and all of your stuff And I think it's important to be open to maybe some of the stuff that you have in your head is jacked up. Okay. Um, (laughs) What does an overseer do? Uh, Wrong question. That's not what... Paul is trying to get out here. He's not giving a list of things that this person is doing. He's not writing a, do- a job description. We would love that as pastor types because we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> That's also not something that people will tell you on most days. But like, Doug and I have been in situations over the past 18 months where it's like, okay, we're not youth pastors anymore. We've got to make a decision here. you know and you just hope that the spirit's working through you and I, I believe that um The spirit has in in many ways, but we've we've messed it up from time to time, too. But Paul's not writing a job description for these people. Instead, he's saying what characteristics describe an overseer. Now, I want to do something that's a bit unconventional here. Uh, Instead of me just marching through this list of stuff and then explaining it all. I mean, some of it's pretty self-explanatory. I want to put this up here and then let you react to it. I want you to to throw out some things that make you you question or at least seem worth talking about. So it says, uh, now the overseer must be above reproach. And before we get into you guys talking, let me just talk for a little bit more. Um, This idea here of they must be above reproach or blameless, it frames the whole text. Verses 2. Through six is one massive run on sentence in the Greek when you 're reading it it doesn 't make a whole lot of sense. It just seems to be like adjective upon adjective upon all this stuff. I tasked Emmy with this to translate this text, and she 's back there shaking her head like yes it 's just a lot of words uh, without much structure and Paul makes people rip their hair out at times when he does that but the overarching thing is this person or these people, they must be above reproach. They must be blameless. And as church leaders read that, we shudder because it's, it's setting the bar really stinking high. What's happening here, too, is it's not, um, it's not the internal stuff that Paul is concerned with here He's talking about the things that people see, because as we see at the end, after this massive run-on sentence, he comes back and talks about the witness that people have with folks outside of their community, what people in the world think of them. So it's, it's stuff that people can see and pinpoint, okay? N.T. Wright says the reason that these folks must keep to these standards is because this is what God longs to see all his children being like. The leaders must, as it were, be on the leading edge of that new humanity, which the church is supposed to be. It's important that there are role models. And within the church, the leaders are tasked with this job of being on the edge of the new humanity. Modeling what it looks like to be a new creation in Christ. The bar, friends, is high because pastors and leaders are not immune to stuff, the things that we all go through. Um, but, but Paul is starting to, to say, like, you um, desire a noble, read-hard, demanding task. And it, it looks like you're above reproach in every way. Who is this guy? Billy Graham. Thank you, Noel. Um, Billy Graham is known for a lot of things. What is he known for most famously, friends? Preaching, Yeah, like packing out stadiums. He would preach this sermon, a lot of times the same one, and he'd get to the, the end crescendo, and what would fire up on the piano? Just as I am without one please. This was like in the 60s. This was like kill the lights, cue up the guitars, put a sweet media presentation on and a fog machine to get people into it. <laughs> like that, that I don't want to say manipulation, but like that emotional pull, like just as I am playing, I've got to go. <laughs> for the people that have been in this area for a while, there was a guy named uh, Jimmy Langrell and he preached all over this place and would give altar calls. And it's the same thing at the end of the sermon that you've heard 100 to 200 times. Um, he would get down on his knees And somewhere, somebody on cue knew, just ask, cue it up, because that's what got people like, yeah! Billy Graham is known for that. He's also known for, um, oh, I forget what it's called, like the Modesto thing basically scratch that it's this code of conduct that he came up with with his piano player and other people that traveled with him that basically said whenever we go places we will never be alone with women in any context they will not drive us to our hotel from the airport we will not sit down and eat a meal with them if we're alone we will not have a meeting with them if we're alone why did he say that to be above reproach because he did not want to, two things probably, one, create this image where if people saw Billy Graham eating with Loretta Lynn at the TGI Fridays, they might think, Billy and Loretta. And that thought right there to him would not let allow him to be someone who's above reproach anymore so he wanted to cut that off he also went even farther by I believe this is the rumor anyway whenever he would go stay in a hotel he got the people to move the TV out of there because he didn't want to be watching anything that was inappropriate Like, dude had walls built up where it was like no one can say anything about me because I've set up all these things it doesn't tell us anything about what's going on internally but it seems as though he has set up safeguards to keep him as one who's above reproach. And we can critique that if we want, but for now, let's just let it sit there. Um, and I would like us to begin to finish this sketch of what above reproach looks like in your mind. I want you to tell me things. As we put a face to this, what does it look like to be above reproach? What are some things that are, are included in that? And this is the danger. (laughs) Come on, talk to me. Honest. Honest. What else? Humble. Humble. Good. What else? We'll get into some of the specifics here in the next few clauses. But just in your mind, what does this look like? Don't necessarily tell me what I need to be. But like in your mind, the pastor type or the overseer type or the leader type, what kind of people do they need to be? Peacemakers, throw out stuff. Work Good work ethic, yeah. Non hypocritical. Okay, non hypocritical, absolutely. What else? Intelligent. intelligent? In what yeah, aspects? Like in the aspect of like knowing what they're talking about. I mean if they're preaching they like need to know like okay. what yeah. about. biblical literacy and knowing theology type things I doubt if you push many pastors on their understanding of organic chemistry it would be small yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> most of them not all I mean I know a ton about organic chemistry so <laughs> got that covered <laughs> what else accepting Accepting. yes absolutely that's good what else encouraging, encouraging. yep life breathing, life breathing. yeah Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When you leave meetings with them, you feel built up. Yep. Anything else? Accountable. Accountable. What do you mean by that? I mean, like, hopefully you have someone in your life that would call out yeah. if they saw mm-hmm. Good. What else? There was a study done um, maybe a year or so ago, and I I think I've probably mentioned this. Church people were given a survey of all sorts of pastoral tasks, and then they had a little blank that said, how many hours a week would you like your pastor to be working on these tasks? So people filled it out. And what they found was the average congregant, um, when they added up these hours, expected their pastor to be working 60 to 80 hours a week fulfilling all of these obligations visitation counseling sermon prep uh, like service outreach all these sorts of things even if we're not speaking them out loud it seems as though we all bring to the table again when we crack open the bible when we have conversations we have this stuff in the back of our head where we say our pastor must look like or be this or the overseer or the bishop must be this type of person whether you know it or not, we all have these things uh, that we expect from them. A lot of things that we listed here are, are, are really good, but I think that we also are um, we're filling this in in our own lives as to what this means because a lot of times I'm going to say something that's going to step on toes. A lot of times we don't usually approach the Bible to change us and to affor- inform our opinions. We usually have our opinions and hope the Bible lines up with it. So even before you open up the text at all, you have these understandings of what you hope this person might be. Paul outlines some of it, again, in his context. This list is replicated all over the ancient world. It's not completely unique. Some ideas are um, recurrent. But the overseer must be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable. I put that Greek up there because the NIV translators have done something for us. They've, they've translated this phrase as faithful to his wife. What does that imply? One married. Yeah, two, a man. Both things I wasn't expecting you to say. <laughs> Yeah, he's not cheating on his wife. Okay? Now, in the Greek, it says, um, a man of one woman. What does that mean? Say it again? Okay, so Ian says he's not a polygamist, which might be a thing... Okay, so whereas these guys have said it's somebody who's faithful within a marriage in the the text, people have been arguing for years about what it actually means. Some people think it does have to do with polygamy. Some people think it has to do with um, shouldn't be divorced. What does it mean to be a, a man of one woman? Does that mean if your wife dies that you don't get to remarry or if your wife cheats on you and leaves that you don't get to remarry? What does that look like? So people have been arguing about these sorts of things and the NIV kind of translates it for you. Um, Okay, so pick out some of these things. I just want to hear two thoughts from you guys. What from this list looks good to you or is worth pursuing for 20 seconds? Worth pursuing for 20 seconds? Sure. Oh, you mean like you, like, talking about not like devoting 20 seconds. (laughs) Uh, I've been sober for 20 seconds. Somebody give me a drink. (laughs) No, I mean, like, together, we'll discuss things for a few seconds. Self-control. Self-control. Faithful to your wife. Well, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, pause. Okay, your thoughts on self-control here. I, there's not, like, this underlying, like, Greek root, once you know it, it unlocks all mysteries, where self-control really means this or that or the other. I mean, self-control is self-control. I don't live at your house, but I struggle with it too. Yeah, like with my dog Porter or on the road with folks that don't know how to drive. They're usually from New Jersey or Pennsylvania. They're not from Delaware. I mean, Delaware is full of great drivers. Okay. No, sir. No. Okay. But yeah, like we, we struggle with this idea of self-control in many different aspects. Um, whether it's giving in to the flesh in the way that we're treating boyfriend and girlfriend, in the way that we're treating husband or wife, in, um, gosh, in, it, it, sometimes, like, in those relationships, there's a tendency in some people's brains to always one-up people, to always have the last word and you're in the middle of a conversation and it's ended and you have a thought run through your head like this would be the best thing to say right now <laughs> and do you go forward or do you restrain yourself?